Let's go ahead and pray, and we will begin our time in the Word together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with hearts full of gratitude that there is a glorious day coming, Jesus, when you will return. And all of those whom you have saved through your death, the shedding of your blood and your resurrection, will be made like you, will be given eternal and lasting life with a resurrected body, never to suffer grief or sin or any of the effects of the curse again. Lord Jesus, we look forward with joy and expectation to your coming, to the establishment of your kingdom in its fullness. And we thank you that this hope is ours because you came and you were born and you lived and you died and you rose again. Lord, as we look forward to that day, we want to live for you. We want to become like you. We offer our hearts to you today and ask you to change us. We believe what your word says, that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So we come to your word with eager hearts, Lord. Teach us, speak to us, and make us into the people you desire us to be for the sake of your name and your glory. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Please open your Bibles this morning to James chapter 1. We began a series through this New Testament letter last week. If you weren't with us, you can go find that uh, online and listen and sort of get the intro to James and, and the message from verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1. Today we'll be in James chapter 1 verses 5 through 8. The theme of James's letter is that genuine faith affects all of life. It touches everything. And as we saw last week, he starts off this book by showing us how faith affects the way you and I respond to trials. Trials are inevitable. We will face them. But in verses 2 through 4, we see that faith frees us to respond to those trials with joy. We can respond to trials with joy when we know and embrace God's good purposes in those trials. We know that he's growing our faith that he's producing endurance, that he's making us whole, he's making us spiritually mature. But that's not all that James has to say to those who are facing adversity. As we move on to verses 5 through 8, I want to point out this morning a second way in which faith in Christ should control how we respond to trials. So look with me this morning in our text, starting in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." It's a very simple point that James makes this morning. Genuine faith seeks wisdom from God. Genuine faith will seek wisdom from God himself. And the hope that James holds out for us is the good news that God delights to give this wisdom to those who ask in faith. So before we dive in and sort of unpack this, what is wisdom anyway? What does James mean by wisdom? We need to define that so that we can rightly listen to what he's telling us. I think we should clarify that first, this is not the wisdom of the world that James is referring to. In 1 Corinthians 3.19, it says, The wisdom of this world is folly with God. 
So not everything that's called wisdom is true wisdom. So keep in mind what James is talking about here. It's not the wisdom of the world. Secondly, it's not just philosophical or intellectual knowledge. Sometimes we think of wisdom as as being intelligence and understanding, but such wisdom offers little help, little real help, in the middle of trials. The book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon points out that that kind of wisdom, wisdom that is just information, wisdom that is just philosophy, wisdom that is purely intellectual, it's empty, it's useless, it's striving after wind. And it just increases your grief in the middle of trials. So what is James talking about when he speaks of wisdom? James is talking about an understanding of God. An understanding of God and his character and his truth that shapes the way that we live. This is spiritual wisdom that James has in mind. It's rooted in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of this kind of wisdom. This wisdom is modeled by Christ, who is wisdom incarnate. But this wisdom is also highly practical. It shapes what you and I do. It's fleshed out in real time in life, and it's the mark of spiritual maturity. This kind of wisdom is a key feature in the book of James. He'll refer to it several times throughout this book. And this kind of wisdom, this spiritual wisdom, an understanding of God and his character and his will that shapes the way we live, this kind of wisdom is inseparable from genuine faith. They go hand in hand. So I'd like to share with you this morning two simple observations about the relationship between faith, genuine faith, and wisdom, spiritual wisdom, the kind of faith and wisdom that James holds so dearly in this book. Number one, genuine faith recognizes the need for wisdom. Genuine faith recognizes the need for wisdom. We see this in verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom... This condition of lacking wisdom, if you and I will be honest, is a condition that all of us will find ourselves in at certain points. Because true wisdom, the kind James is speaking of, is not something you and I are born with. It's not just that some people naturally have it and other people naturally don't. It's something that's acquired over time. It's not a natural talent. It's a divine gift. So we all are called to seek wisdom and gain wisdom and grow in wisdom and get wisdom. Proverbs 4 verse 7 says it this way. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. In chapter 16 of Proverbs, in verse 16, Solomon writes, How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Now, not everyone prioritizes or values wisdom like this, do they? Some people don't care. They're more than happy to not know who God is, to not understand his character, to have no grasp of his will, and to live a life that's completely disconnected from that. And there's some people who think they already have all the wisdom there is to have. You can't teach them anything. They're right about everything. But you know what? Trials have a funny way, don't they, of helping us see our need for wisdom. Trials expose our lack of this wisdom because they put us under pressure. When you're facing a trial, when you're in the middle of adversity, all of a sudden you realize, I need to know what to do. I I need to know how to respond to this. I need to know what to think and even how to feel. I need to know what direction to go. I need to know what choice to make. 
So gaining wisdom in times of trial feels like a matter of survival, doesn't it? I need wisdom. Trials expose this need for us. And often it is a matter of survival. But this need for wisdom is also an indispensable part of growing into spiritual maturity. You see, James ties this section that we're looking at this morning, 5 through 8. Keep in mind, it's totally connected to what comes before and what comes after. And look in verse 4. James says that as these trials are producing steadfastness in us, he says, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. To be mature, to be complete, is to not be lacking any of the virtues that God desires to build into our lives. And then that word lacking gets repeated in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom. So James ties these two sections together, repeating this term. Showing us that we need wisdom not just to survive, but also because spiritual maturity, being whole, being complete... It includes and requires wisdom. It's a matter of our sanctification. Think of it this way. There's no such thing as someone who is spiritually mature but foolish and lacking wisdom. That's an oxymoron. And on the flip side, there's no such thing as someone who is spiritually immature, who who needs sanctification, who, who has lots of spiritual wisdom. No, these two things go together. Wisdom and maturity go hand in hand, which means that growing in wisdom is part of God's plan to make you and me more like his son, Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul, as a wise pastor, prays in Ephesians 1.17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Paul prays in Colossians 1.9, from the day we heard... From the day he heard about their faith, that they believed in Jesus, he says, We've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Wisdom is a necessary aspect of becoming whole, becoming complete, becoming mature in our faith, and lacking in nothing. And genuine faith, if you possess the kind of vibrant, living, saving faith that James is talking about, genuine faith recognizes the need for this wisdom. And you will especially recognize this need in times of trial. Trials expose that need. So genuine faith recognizes the need for wisdom. But secondly, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time, genuine faith seeks wisdom from God. It's one thing to recognize you need it. But it's another thing to seek it from God. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Again, this is part of the benefit of trials, isn't it? Trials bring pressure. And and often trials give us instant perspective that pushes us to seek not just wisdom, but to seek God himself. Like the man who feels thirsty reaches for water, or like the the woman who is cold scoots closer to the fire, the one who lacks wisdom must seek God. We seek God in faith. This is our expression of faith because we believe, first of all, that God is the source of true wisdom. Listen to Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. 
Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All. In 1 Corinthians 1, 24, Paul writes that to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. God possesses infinite wisdom. Jesus Christ is wisdom incarnate in the flesh. So he is the divine reservoir from which we must go to draw forth the wisdom that we need. Genuine faith will seek wisdom and will seek wisdom specifically from God because we believe that he is the source of the wisdom that we need. It really displays a lack of faith. And even, if I can say it this strongly, it it reflects unbelief when we go everywhere else in the world to look for wisdom and neglect God. When we search our own hearts, seeking wisdom and understanding. When we trust our own feelings and intuitions to guide us. Or when we even rely on our own reason and rational abilities. We're neglecting God. This is unbelief. It's failing to demonstrate faith by going to God as the source of wisdom, believing that he is the one who provides the wisdom that we need. I think it's maybe easier for us, rather than seeking God, just to go to Google. Or maybe we survey the people that we think know a lot. You know, research the mommy blogs to find out what we need to learn. And we neglect to seek the Lord and ask for his wisdom. Friends, this is unbelief. It's a lack of faith, and it guarantees that true wisdom, the thing that you need, will remain out of reach because you're looking in the wrong places. We must seek God in faith, believing that he is the source of true wisdom. But we also seek God in faith because we believe that not only is he the source of wisdom, but we believe what James says, that he will give us this wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You see, amazingly, the instruction that James gives us to ask for wisdom is coupled with this promise, a promise that if you ask, God will give. If you seek, you will find. Our God is the source of wisdom, and he, get this, delights to give wisdom out of his abundance. James says he gives generously. He gives it generously. With joy, he gives wisdom. With sincerity, he gives wisdom. He gives it without hesitation because of his unwavering commitment to provide what we need to guide us into his will and to make us like his son, Jesus Christ. He is quick to say yes when we ask for wisdom. He is generous. And he gives, James says, secondly, without reproach. God doesn't scold you when you come and ask for wisdom. He doesn't sit back and say, really, you don't know that? Really, you haven't been able to figure that out? I expected more of you. No, he doesn't expect us to generate something in our own strength that only he possesses. He is ready and willing to give, and he gives without reproach. We have the example in the Old Testament of the young king, Solomon, David's son, who prayed in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? 
And the author writes, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God is pleased when we ask him for wisdom. Jesus himself assures us of the Father's eagerness to answer these kinds of prayers. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Jesus invites us, exhorts us to draw near and to ask and to expect that our heavenly Father will say yes and provide. You see, this tells us something, not just about God's wisdom, that he has it all, that he's the infinite resource, but this tells us something about God's character, that he is good, that he is generous, that he delights to give out of his abundance. You see, to James, wisdom is a divine gift, and that means it's grace. This is grace. And our God is a God of grace who overflows in grace, whose heart is stirred by grace, whose actions demonstrate grace, whose will is gracious. And so we draw near and ask for grace. It's a gift. It's not something that's earned. It's not something that we can acquire apart from God in our own strength. Wisdom, this gracious gift, is received from the benevolent hand of our Heavenly Father. James will say later in chapter 1, verse 17, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God's not going to be in a bad mood tomorrow and say, I changed my mind. I'm not in the mood to give out wisdom today. That's not what he's like. And friends, this is a truth that must be believed by faith. We believe God is the source and we believe that he will give it. The one who gave us breath, the one who sent his only son to die for us, the one who gives us forgiveness, the one who gives us his indwelling Holy Spirit, the one who gives us a share in the internal, eternal inheritance, will he really begrudge to give us wisdom when we seek and ask? Absolutely not. At least that's what Paul tells us in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us what? Do you know it? You can say it out loud. It's okay. All things. All things. If he didn't hold back his son from us, he won't hold back wisdom either. James assures us he will give it. And I love what he says here. That he gives generously to who? To all. To all. What this means, friends, is that you are a candidate to receive divine wisdom. It's for you. Wisdom's not an exclusive gift that's reserved just for the spiritually elite. It's not just for pastors or the saints who have gray hair or no hair, like some of my friends here. And I'm going to join you soon, by the way. Wisdom is for you. In fact, it is God's will that you become wise, that you become mature. 
So what this means is when you pray for wisdom, you're praying according to God's will. Those are the kinds of prayers we can be confident God will answer. We don't need to say, Lord, if it's your will, give me the wisdom that I need. Give me the understanding of your character and your truth and your promises so that I can live in a way that will please you. If we ask for those things, God says yes, because it's his will. Those are the kinds of prayers he wants to answer. Wisdom's a divine gift. He promises to give it to all who ask generously, to all who ask, and he does this generously and without reproach. But there's more to this text, isn't there? The all that God gives wisdom to does have some limits. And verses six through eight give us two different qualifications. It says in verse six, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There's two qualifications as to those who will receive this wisdom. First of all, they must ask in faith. They must ask in faith. Now, this concept of asking in faith can be troubling for many Christians and confusing. Does the answer to our prayers really depend on the strength of our faith? Let's think about that for a minute. Maybe you've heard the statement that your thoughts create your reality. I mean, if you guys have heard that before. Or, or speak it into existence. That's the law of attraction, by the way. That's the claim that if you believe hard enough, if you want it bad enough, and if you're confident enough in the outcome that what you want to happen will happen. But brothers and sisters, to use a theological term, that's garbage, okay? <laughs> Those are the words of New Age philosophy. That's not biblical. It's patently false. In fact, that kind of thinking You can wrap it in Christian flavoring all you want, but that kind of thinking is actually idolatrous. It's idolatrous. It's serious. It's blasphemous. And here's why. That kind of thinking takes power and providence. The ability to control the future and and the, the right to dictate what will happen in the future, it takes power and providence away from God and places it within man as something to be uncovered and used. That's idolatrous, and it is blasphemous, and it is unbiblical. That sort of thinking deifies self as sovereign and dethrones God. But sadly, this kind of thinking can infect Christianity, especially in the arena of prayer. People wrongly believe that faith is some sort of invisible element, this this mystical substance that if you have enough of it, you have the power to get what you want. Whether that be healing or success or money or answered prayer of any kind. That's presumptuous, but it's also discouraging because what happens when you don't get those things? You might be, be tempted to feel guilty. You might wrestle with condemnation and feel like a failure. Because your prayers haven't been answered. Maybe some of you have felt that way. You might feel like it's your fault. Because you just must not have believed enough. 
Is that what James is telling us here? That the one who asks must ask in faith without doubting? Is he saying that we have the power in ourselves and that it depends on whether or not we believe hard enough? I don't think that's what James is teaching us. He's not saying if you believe hard enough, you'll get what you ask for. And he's also not saying that any shade of uncertainty about the future will somehow ruin your cry for help and God won't hear you. I think, first of all, we need to back up and get a biblical definition of faith. Genuine faith has several elements. We see this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, where the author of Hebrews says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's a good definition of faith. It includes three different aspects. It includes, first of all, knowledge. You must believe something about God to be true, and to believe it, you have to know it. So faith requires, at the bare minimum, a knowledge of the truth. That's why later James exhorts us in verse 21 of chapter 1 to receive the word with meekness. We need to know what's true. So there's a knowledge aspect, but secondly, there's an aspect of affirmation or assent or belief. To to know what is true is one thing, but then to believe it and affirm it and say it's good and it's right That's the second aspect of faith. But even that is insufficient. There's a third level of faith, and that's trust. Resting in his promises. Entrusting yourself to those things. Leaning on it. Putting all your eggs in that basket, so to speak. I think that's what the author of Hebrews means when he says, we must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There's content to these promises And the implication is that we do seek him because we believe he'll keep his promises. There's trust there. There's knowledge and affirmation and trust. This is faith. You know what's lacking from that definition? Absolute certainty about the future. That's not a part of biblical faith. We have absolute certainty about God, about his character, and about his promises. But God never promises us that we get to know the future exactly how everything works out. We don't always know in what timing God will fulfill his promises or in what way. We just know that he will. So to have some level of uncertainty about the future doesn't mean that you lack biblical faith. It doesn't mean that you should pray as if you know exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and how it should happen. Knowledge, affirmation, and trust. This is faith. And those who ask for wisdom, to bring us back into James here, those who ask for wisdom, number one, know who God is. There's knowledge here that he's God. He's the one who possesses all wisdom. Number two, we believe in this truth. We believe it's true. We believe his promises. And so third, we trust him. We lean on him. We depend on him by seeking him and asking expectantly for him to give this wisdom. James says, such people can fully expect that God will give the wisdom that we ask for. Listen to what the Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote about the prayer of faith that believes the promises of God. I think this sort of describes it perfectly. Sibbs writes, we should watch daily, continue instant in prayer. That means being quick to pray, constantly praying. We should strengthen our supplications with arguments from God's word. And promises. And mark how our prayers speed. When we shoot an arrow, we look to its fall. 
When we send a ship to sea, we look for its return. And when we sow, we look for a harvest. It is atheism to pray and to not wait in hope. A sincere Christian will pray, wait, strengthen his heart with the promises, and never leave praying and looking up till God gives him a gracious answer. That should describe our seeking of wisdom from God. Strengthening our arguments. God, you promised to give wisdom. Strengthening our mind and our heart with the truth of his word. God, this is what you say, and I believe it is true. And then trusting him, saying, I'm going to wait on you. I'm not going to give you five minutes, and if you don't answer, I'm going to go try plan B over there. No, I'm going to wait on you and trust that you will do what you say. The prayer of faith comes from a heart that is wholly devoted to God and simply believes that God will keep his promises. So God gives wisdom to all who genuinely trust him. This is a promise to be known and believed and rested in. But this promise comes with a warning. There's a contrast here. The flip side of asking in faith. He says in verse 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting. With no doubting. You see, God does not give anything. As he tells us, he does not give anything to those who are double-minded. Let him ask with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything, not just wisdom, but anything from the Lord. Why? Verse 8, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The Greek word for doubt here is not just, again, meaning some little shred of uncertainty about the future. What James is doing here as we read this in context is condemning a lack of loyalty and a lack of commitment to Christ. He's describing a skepticism of the heart. This is the person, this person who is doubting is the person who is spiritually indecisive, the sort of person who hedges their bets. Okay, I'll pray to God and I'll try the Christian approach, but I also have this plan B. Their prayer is sort of half-heartedly throwing out a call for help to God while at the same time keeping one foot firmly planted in the world. James describes this person as being like a wave that's tossed by the sea. They seek God one day and love the world the next. They're like the swells out in the open ocean that never keep their shape, that sometimes change direction. They mix and swirl around whichever direction the current pulls or the wind blows. James is describing someone who's spiritually schizophrenic. They're all over the place. We tend to see doubt as an emotion, don't we? But James sees doubt here as a spiritual position, a posture of the heart. We tend to see doubt as uncertainty about the future, but James describes doubt as uncertainty about God. Questioning God, questioning God's character, James calls such a person double-minded, a double-minded man. And he says this person in verse 8 is unstable in all his ways. Verse 8 points to the fact that this person's not just someone who has questions about a particular issue or struggles from time to time on a specific point. This is a comprehensive description. James is saying something about this person's character. This is just who they are. 24-7. They're unstable in all their ways, and so they will not receive anything from God. 
because they don't have the relationship to God as a heavenly father. If they did, their father would delight to give them everything that is good. But if they can expect to receive nothing from God, then it brings into question their very relationship with him. This warning that they won't receive anything from God shows us much more is at stake than simply lacking wisdom. Such a person lacks the right relationship with God. They lack genuine faith. Being a double-minded man is a spiritual dead end. Jesus said, didn't he, that no one can serve two masters. That doesn't stop a lot of people from trying. Please don't fool yourself. God is not interested in being your accessory. He's not interested in being your plan B, your insurance policy. You can't ride the fence. Here's what God desires from us. He wants not hypocritical, double-minded lip service. God wants wholehearted trust, love, and commitment. True faith is total faith. Psalm 119 verse 2 says, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with how much of your might? All your might. It's comprehensive. Total faith. Wholehearted devotion to God. So as we read through this second section, this clarification that we must ask in faith without doubting, James isn't telling us that the power to achieve your desires lies in the strength of your own faith. No, the power lies in God, not in our faith. But this God responds generously only to those who ask in faith, not to those who are double-minded, who are hypocritical, who do not have a right relationship with him. Perhaps this describes some of you here today. Perhaps some of you might be double-minded. Maybe you've wanted God's help, and you're genuinely interested in what God can give you because you know that you know what's true, that he is God and he is holy, and you will stand before him one day in the judgment. You know that he is strong, and you have weaknesses. You know that he's the provider, and you have needs, and you're genuinely interested in those things, but you've not been willing to abandon yourself to the merciful rule of Christ over your entire life. So what should you do if that describes you today? James tells us, flip over to chapter 4, verse 8. James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Those who are double-minded don't just need increased faith. According to chapter 4, they need to repent. To repent of their divided loyalties. To repent of your refusal to trust fully in God. To repent of seeking to use God for your own purposes instead of allowing him to use you. Perhaps today you need to repent of holding on to the world and what it offers 
And instead, come and cast yourself fully on the mercy of God. Because you need to have your heart purified. You need to experience the transformation that takes place when the Holy Spirit comes and takes up his residence in you and makes you new, makes you alive. This happens when you believe in the promise of Christ. That through union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, your sins can be forgiven. And your status as an enemy of God can be changed. And through the grace of adoption, you can become his son or his daughter. Believe that promise. Believe the good news of the gospel. God saves sinners when they trust in the gospel. When they cry out to him in faith with a heart that is broken over their sin, that is broken over their divided loyalties and their idolatrous commitments. My friend, the greatest need you have today is not for practical wisdom to know how to face whatever trial you may be facing. Perhaps your greatest need is for deliverance from the penalty of your sins, your sins against a God who is holy and just. My friends, you need the person of wisdom. You need Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers. So draw near to God today in faith, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts if you are the double-minded person. And you will know him as your father. And he will give you the wisdom that you need. If you're a believer here today, then maybe you recognize today that you are in need of wisdom. Wisdom to face a trial. Or perhaps the wisdom that will bring you one step closer to being more like Christ. Perhaps today you've been convinced that God is the source of wisdom and that he will answer your prayer. I'm glad for that. I'm glad that you can nod and say amen to those truths But I'm going to take just a brief little rabbit trail. We don't always do this, but I'm going to today. So if you're in that boat today, okay, I need wisdom. God gives it. I'm going to ask, how should you expect God to supply this wisdom? Let's just sort of chase that rabbit down the trail for a moment. How should you expect God to provide? Proverbs 3, 5 and verse 6 both. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Or as the King James says it, he will direct your paths. So how does God do that? How does he make our paths straight? How does he show us the way to go? How does he direct us? A couple very simple things. He does this primarily through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, God will direct your paths, and he'll supply wisdom, first of all, through his word. Through his word, this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to open God's word to us, to illuminate the truth of God's word in our mind, to convict us of sin and to shine the light on the, on the ways that we think and the things that we feel and the actions that we're taking that are out of line with God's will. It is the Holy Spirit's role to empower us to obey all that we see in the scriptures as he helps us to understand what it says. So friends, if you're seeking wisdom today and you know you need it, then go read your Bible prayerfully, asking God to give you wisdom, asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth and to apply it to your heart and to show you how you can obey and to empower you to do everything that it says. That's the path to wisdom. Psalm 19 verse 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect 
reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. If you are simple and need to be made wise, which includes all of us in various degrees, then seek wisdom in the word. The book of Proverbs is an entire book dedicated to wisdom. The Old Testament law reveals to us God's will and shows us the, the morality of God's wisdom. In the New Testament, we read of Jesus, who is wisdom incarnate. We see his, his life. We see his answers. We see his teachings. In the apostles' writings and the rest of the New Testament, they unpack for us how to live in light of the gospel. My friends, from Genesis to Revelation, we have the wisdom of God laid out for us. Read it. Take up and read. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to lead us into a deeper understanding of Scripture so that we can live wisely. Wisdom comes through the Word. It comes through the Word. And then secondly, very simply, wisdom also comes through godly counsel. I think it's sad and ironic when people kneel down and they pour out their heart and they pray, Oh God, give me wisdom. Oh God, speak to me. Holy Spirit, lead me in the way you want me to go. And then they refuse to talk to anyone else, especially the Christians who have the very Holy Spirit dwelling within them. Is it possible that God's Holy Spirit in a brother or in a sister might answer your prayer by leading you, giving you wise counsel? My friends, those who truly value wisdom and who value the ministry of the Holy Spirit will be highly receptive to the wisdom of others. They will value the way that the Holy Spirit has led others and taught others and worked in others to make them wise. And you will be eager to benefit from that. My friends, we do not magnify the Spirit's work by seeking some mystical peace all by ourselves. I'm going to go sit on top of a pole for 10 years and I'm going to come back wise. No, if we're seeking wisdom, we'll dive into the word and we'll eagerly engage with other people who have wisdom. You will seek out those who know God's word best. You will seek out those who live a life that is marked by an application of scripture, those who have maturity, those who demonstrate the fruit of the spirit, those who are like Christ. You will want to be around those kinds of people and you'll want to pick their brain. You'll want to ask them questions. And you will fully expect that maybe God will answer some of your prayers for wisdom by speaking through that person into your life. When you cut off other people, you're cutting off one of the channels by which God gives wisdom. So I hope that's a little bit practical. There's more we could say about that. I'll just say go read the book of Proverbs and we'll have a conversation about it later. But there's lots and lots of ways that we can expect God to supply wisdom. I've just highlighted what I think are probably the two most important and what should be the two most prominent in our lives. So in conclusion, there's really two ways to live according to James chapter 1, our text this morning. You can either live the single-minded life of faith that's fully focused on God, that trusts him and seeks him and seeks the wisdom that only he can provide, or you can live the double-minded hypocritical life of doubt that refuses to embrace all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. My prayer is that today you would worship and submit to Christ 
the one who is the knowledge and the wisdom and the power of God, and that we would grow together in seeking this wisdom. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the light it shines on our need. We are a people who need wisdom. And we recognize this morning that you desire to make us wise. It's an essential aspect of spiritual maturity, sanctification. Lord, forgive us for our foolishness, for leaning on our own understanding, trusting our own heart. I pray that you would make us teachable and open, that you would strengthen us by your spirit to pray in faith and to seek wisdom from you. I pray that this wisdom would be shared in this congregation, in counsel and conversation. I pray that this wisdom would be prized in this congregation as we look to your word as our sole authority, as the sufficient supply of the wisdom that we need. Lord, help us not to buy into the lie that the world has something to offer, that it has some sort of wisdom that transcends your word or that makes up for a deficiency in your word. It's the oldest lie in the book. Has God really said? And then Satan loves to come along and offer an alternate channel of wisdom. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to you, that we would seek you, trust you, believe you, and that we would grow into Christ-likeness. I pray for those who are facing trials today, those who might be feeling the pressure of life, whether they're at a crossroads and have a big decision, whether they are dealing with suffering or adversity of some kind. I pray that as this trial, as this pressure weighs on their heart, that they would recognize their need for wisdom, that they would seek it from you. And I pray, God, that you would answer this prayer, that you would keep your promise. Give them the wisdom that they need so that they can endure and persevere in the midst of that trial, so that they can live and act in a way that would honor you and reflect your character and reflect your truth. Lord, we are eager to see these truths fleshed out in our lives. Help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And we pray that you be honored and glorified as we continue to ask for wisdom in faith. Amen.